Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we visit makers at the first do-it-yourself day at the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences. But first up, here's the news about sonic spying. Cell phone sonar spying. Researchers at the Paul G. Allen School of Computer Science and Engineering at the University of Washington have demonstrated that an Android app loaded onto a smartphone can use its microphone and connection to a portable speaker, home theatre system or TV to track people's movements around a room, even through walls and doors. The phone directs the speaker to put out a high-pitched sound disguised in music that bounces off people in a way that the phone can analyse when it's detected by the phone's microphone. The attacker can tell where people are in a room and what they're doing. The Active Sonar Android app is called Covert Band. Active Sonar systems, such as on submarines, determine the positions of objects by sending out an acoustic pulse. These sound waves bounce off objects in their path and the reflected waves can be picked up by a receiver to determine the object's position, distance and shape. The researchers used acoustic pulses in the 18 to 20 kHz range, disguised by music. Few adults can hear sounds as high-pitched as 18 to 20 kHz, although children, younger adults and even pets might be able to hear them. They used a Samsung S4 model phone, which like many modern smartphones, have two microphones. The second microphone allowed them to get location information as well as distance. The Amazon Echo has seven microphones, so it would give you a third dimension of location. You know, in case people were dancing on the ceiling. They were able to decipher different kinds of repetitive movements, such as arm pumping, walking, jumping, or pelvic tilts while lying down, to a range of up to six metres from the smartphone. The sonar's accuracy was plus or minus 18 centimetres for people walking and plus or minus 8 centimetres for people who were still but moving their arms or body. For comparison, radar would have an error of 11 to 19 centimetres when tracking moving people through walls. It's comparable. When they used a small portable speaker, covert bands pulses could transmit through thin interior walls though the range drops to 2 to 3 metres. To increase the range of surveillance and work through walls, the researchers increased the volume of those repeating pulses, which made them audible to anyone. They became audible because the speakers aren't designed to play 18 to 20 kHz sounds clearly. And when you turn up the volume, the speakers create noise. Sounds and frequencies that most people can easily hear. To mask the sound, they covered covert bands' pulses by playing songs or other audio clips over them. 
Some songs work better than others, particularly compositions with repetitive percussive beats. With the right music, listeners could tell the hacked version of the sound only 58% of the time, which is slightly better than chance. The music could be much softer than the sonar pulses and still hide them effectively. Here's a few seconds of the actual sonar pulse with noise. And here's the same pulse disguised in snippets of various songs. The researchers tried the spying scenario where one subject, Bob, pretended to go through a routine in the bathroom, while the other, Alice, used covert band to track his movements. Alice placed the speaker set up 15 centimetres outside the bathroom door and performed four trials during which Bob spent less than 20 seconds doing each of the following. Showering, drying off on the scales, brushing his teeth standing at the sink, and sitting on the toilet. During the experiment, the bathroom fan was on and Alice could not hear Bob performing any of the activities inside the bathroom. Alice was also able to download the publicly available floor plan for this particular apartment, which let her map each of the stops to different stations within the bathroom. Floor plans for many apartments and hotels are available online. Alice was able to track Bob at each station and determine what he was doing and for how long. They had a little trouble working out when he was in the shower and when he was drying off because he was so quick that the accuracy of the location was reduced to within 20 centimetres. The researchers say that the accuracy would have been better if he'd actually spent the time doing the activities. You could soundproof your home, but that's impractical for most people. An alternative is to program a tiny Raspberry Pi computer to warn you when it detects sound frequencies higher than you can hear. Alternatively, counter-spies could use an app and speaker that puts out sonar signals with false information about the number of people in the room and what they're doing. Since Covert Band's active sonar works through walls, you don't even have to have a hacked phone, speaker or TV to be spied on. An attacker in a neighbouring flat or apartment could point their speakers at your shared wall and spy on your position and movements with active sonar. It's enough for your neighbours to use an Amazon Echo or Google Home or Apple HomePod for your privacy to be violated because Amazon, Google and Apple could spy through your walls to see what you're all doing. Advertisers could make sure they only play ads when you're near the speakers or that the ads they play are matched to what you're doing. Spies, blackmailers and stalkers can spy on people without special equipment. Is your neighbour having a loud party or are they spying on you? Or is someone on the other side of the world spying on you? The paper was titled Covert Band. Activity Information Leakage Using Music. And published in the journal Proceedings for Association for Computing Machinery on Interactive Mobile Wearable and Ubiquitous Technologies.
You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now we go to the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences Do-It-Yourself Day, which takes the place of the previous Sydney Mini Make Affairs. My name is Ayn Nguyen. My name is Alex Makari. My name is Flavia Ching Lu. My name is Theresa Tran and we're from Seton College. <laughs> and what's your project? You've sent something into space. So us girls, we coded a program to be sent up to space on a Raspberry Pi and we conducted an experiment to see the health effects on the body when living in space and this program is called CubeRider. So you were part of the CubeRider program on the little tiny computer that went into space and ran a whole lot of students' projects. Oh, and you've got one here which I can take a photo of later. So to do CubeRider, we coded a Raspberry Pi, so that's a Raspberry Pi, and we used the language of Python. So to learn Python, we went through modules and we learnt how to code it, so from scratch by ourselves. And on the ISS, what we used with these, oh, so we coded 11 sensors. So with these 11 sensors, we sent that to space. And in space, we used three sensors. Okay, the sensor that measured humidity, temperature and pressure. And from these results, we looked at how these can have a long-term effect on our skin. So we found out that it would make your skin dry and it was really prone to being dry. So from this, we made a prototype. So we just formulated a skin moisturiser. So you've created a moisturiser based on all this data from 11 sensors that you had on the Raspberry Pi. So it was humidity and temperature and pressure and a whole bunch of other things. So how did you work out how this affects skin? Um, We actually contacted a dermatologist, like that's um, Teresa's mum. Yeah, and like from that we asked her questions about like in what conditions will it's going to be dry and like how often you would need to moisturise and what goes into a moisturiser. So we, we created the product, essentially. So while everyone else was looking out into space, you actually looked inside the International Space Station to see what the conditions were like and what people would need. Yeah, but essentially. How long did it take for the program to run for you to get all the information? We had two periods of 50 minutes, was it 50 minutes? 50 minute periods and it, so it ran and we took information I think every three seconds, every three seconds, in three second intervals over two periods for 50 minutes each, over two different days. And how long did it take to plan the project and learn all the skills you needed to be able to make it happen? So we started this project since around the beginning of last year. So this whole experiment required us to first go through the modules to learn Python, how to code, then we learned how to code it. And during that time we all discussed um, what we are curious about in space. And from that we came up with the idea to look into the effects on the body. So from there we figured, okay, with these sensors we'll collect these data and look specifically using the dermatologist advice how the, the temperature and humidity up in space is not, is very different from on Earth and how that does affect skin by making more dry and can lead to eczema and lesions and that. And is this project part of your HSC? No, it's an extracurriculum activity outside of school. 
And have you contacted NASA or anyone else who uses the space station about using your product? We have, we're in the process of contacting NASA to see what kind of skin procedures or skin products they use for the astronauts at the moment, but we haven't got a reply yet. <laughs> it must be a really big thing if you're stuck in a spacesuit in a tiny tin can with lots of people with no fresh air for a long period of time. It must be a big deal to have your skin comfortable and not itching. Yeah, that's correct, because no one wants to have dry skin, that can lead to eczema and have eye problems as well and lesions that can lead to infections and that. And that sort of thing would go right around the space station because it's so small. Yeah, so if one day we do have a mission to Mars or so, or whatever planet one day, we, we recommend to bring such moisturiser onto space so that the astronauts can apply at least twice a day to ensure their skin is healthy. And has this inspired you to think of future projects? This, is, this was Cubrider phase one, so now we're doing a second phase and we're thinking of another experiment to run. So yeah, it, it inspired us to set our standards for the next project. Any hints on what the next one will be? Um, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> thank you from Serdon College. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Elias Abutanius, Deputy Director of the Australian Centre for Space Engineering Research. And tell me, you've launched something recently? Yes, so the, well, we've got two satellites in space. So Australia has three satellites in space at the moment. Two of them we're involved in. One of them is completely ours, and the other one is a collaboration with the University of Sydney and the Australian National University. And so what do these satellites do? So these satellites are part of an international mission to study the thermosphere, and it's an area of the atmosphere that is very little understood, the lower thermosphere, because it's, you know, satellites don't survive up there for long, so it's been in the past very difficult to put something up there. This is the overall international mission, and each satellite has its own goals as well. Our satellite has a number of experiments that we've designed and built and incorporated. And what is the thermosphere? The thermosphere is the layer of the atmosphere between about 100 and 1,000 kilometers. And the lower thermosphere, it's, it's also called the ionosphere. It's made up of atoms without their electrons, so hence the name ionosphere. It's the lower thermosphere, so between about 100 and 400 kilometers, is very little understood because it, it, can only, it has only been explored in the past by sounding rockets from below or satellites from above. And the ionosphere is something that shortwave signals bounce off? That's completely correct, yes. Uh, so the ionosphere is the layer of the atmosphere that uh, shortwave radio bounces off. It's also very important for us to study because it affects our satellite communications, it affects our weather pattern on the ground. It's actually the layer of the atmosphere that solar storms and solar wind meets, hence the ionisation. And that's also what lights up when there's auroras? That's, that's also correct. So the ionosphere, uh, because uh, this is where the solar winds hit, it's where the auroras happen. And what sort of sensors are on your satellites? So we have a uh, scientific experiment that uh, as a satellite flies it collects atoms and works out what they are, so giving us an idea of what the composition of the thermosphere. We've got a, a number of experiments of, that are also carried by the satellite, including a GPS. It's an Australian-built GPS built at UNSW. We've got a computer that self-heals because up there you've got radiation and radiation disrupts computers and in the past you'd had to restart and reboot the whole thing. We've got a computer that can detect what's called a single event upset 
and uh, fix itself. We've got another computer that uh, is called the Cell 4. It's a, it's a computer that uh, has been guaranteed to have an execution time, which means that it doesn't crash, in a sense. So um, it's a computer that is deployed on a lot of mobile phones now. And uh, the, the structure itself is an experiment because it's 3D printed. What's it 3D printed out of? So traditional structures are made up of aluminium, machined aluminium. It's, they're slow to make, they're expensive. Our structure is a 3D printed thermoplastic, so it's very lightweight, and it's coated with nickel for conductivity, so for static and uh, so forth for condu conductivity. The experiment is to see how this behaves in space. And where did you launch these from? So the, our satellite was launched from Cape Canaveral, so it was handed over to the European Consortium, the European University. They've handed it over to a company in the, in the States who handed it over to NASA. NASA put it on a rocket, they launched it to the International Space Station. Eventually when the astronauts got time, they pushed it out of the International Space Station, it's orbiting now. These satellites are the first Australian satellites in 15 years. We've only had a handful of satellites, very small number of satellites before, but this is the dawn of a new era. CubeSats are making space accessible to everybody, and this is an excellent opportunity for Australia. It's, it's an opportunity for us to enter the space race again. And how big are these CubeSats? They've been described as a loaf of bread. They're literally the size of a loaf of bread. They weigh a couple of kilograms. They're very, very small. And the budget that you need to make these things, you can, you can literally mortgage your house and put one of them in space. It's about a million dollars you can have one in space. And you've got students involved. This project has been going on for, for five years. We've had a large team of students who have been involved at different times. This project was built on student volunteers which is a unique thing, it's an amazing thing to have. We've got a team of amazing staff who mentored an incredible team of students who made this happen. So if you can't mortgage your house but you'd really like to do it, what do you have to study to be able to build a CubeSat? So look, it's, space systems are very complex, they draw on diverse uh, set of areas electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, you have uh, structures, you have uh, computing, so a lot of a lot of areas that come into the, the making of a, a space system. So undergraduate-wise, you have to study an area of engineering like electrical, mechanical, computing. And at UNSW, we have a postgraduate program that is space systems engineering that actually brings you much closer to this. So it, it sharpens your skills and qualifications to allow you to build one of these. And do you have any words for anyone who is considering taking that sort of course? Yeah, I mean, come and see us. You know, space is within reach. We used to think that uh, space can only be done if you're a US citizen, you know, and you could you have access to NASA, you can be employed for, by NASA. It's no longer the case. We've got, a, we've got three Australian satellites in space. You can be involved, you can do it. Just come and see us. Well, Elias, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm uh, Branko Dijkstraat from the MathWorks. We're here uh, to get people to do engineering and science at a youthful level. And so you, you're saying here that your software talks to Raspberry Pis, so you don't have to. So what does it do? Our software allows you to explore ideas that you'd like to, to make in a simplified manner. So with GUIs and, and building blocks. And once you've established, all right, this is what I want to do, then you just should hit a button and send it to your robot and then your robot will do that thing so you don't need to learn programming or complicated new languages for every device you want to play to. So what do people normally program Arduinos in? 
Arduino's got its own development environment, uh, Raspberry Pi's got its own environment, which is a little different. Lego Mindstorms has got its own uh, environment, which is a little different. So the idea of what we, we have here is one environment where you can simulate and develop your ideas again, and with a hit of a button, put it either on one device or another platform and not having to restart again. Oh, uh, this one is a little different. Oh, that, I need to change that. So is it sort of like a graphical display language? Uh, a part of it, yeah. There's two, two parts of the, the product that we have. MATLAB is a, you, you could say, a text-based environment that allows you to do mathematical computing. For programming robots, a large part is actually uh, logic, control logic, and that's got a graphical environment, so where you graphically put building blocks together. Not too dissimilar from the Mindstorms built blocks that come with the software. And what sort of demonstrations have you got here today of what you can do with this? On the one end, we've got the robot-based platform where we've got a line tracking robot that detects if something is in front of it and detects if the line takes a turn and, and follows it. It's similar to what the Robocop uh, Junior uh, people do. We've got a demo showing uh, all the way on the other end, a deep learning demo where a camera is looking at objects and it tries to guess what that object is. So it, it, it's based on a neural net that's openly available on the internet. We've can got... Just, can I stop yep. you? So did you have to train that or did you have a training data set online? This training data set is online, it's AlexNet. We, we interface to a lot of existing training data sets, but you can train it yourself as well. The issue with deep learning is it requires a lot of images to start learning, so you know, you, you'd like to start with something that already works and then do transfer training, so teach it extra things on top of it. So you could actually, with MATLAB and with a bit of hardware, you could do some of this object recognition using these libraries that are already online of data so you wouldn't have to start from scratch. Absolutely. That's the idea that, that if, if you look at the code here within two lines of code, you've loaded up the existing AlexNet and you can start running it and immediately get some results. And then if you want to train a net that's very good at recognizing cats and dogs, then you start adding a lot of cat pictures and a lot of dog pictures and train it and then it'll get better at that bit. So, absolutely. So, the code you've got here What's the language that it's closest to if someone was to learn the, the MATLAB language? I think the MATLAB language is closest to scientific language. So just the equations as you see them in textbooks, as you see them in the books you learn in school. We try to keep the language close to normal notations. There is a little bit of extra functionality to do some logic, like a loop or, or memory indexing. But most of it is really around, you write your algebraic equations as you do it, and, and that's how we like to keep it. But the logic and the library calling and so on, is that more like C or Python, or what's it like? I think it's probably closest to Python if you compare it between C and Python. Python is a bit script-based, and, and it's got a lot of similarities there, yeah. And I interrupted you, what are the other demonstrations you have here? Uh, we've got another demonstration here of a, I don't know if you know, I think this is an Arduino running a proximity sensor that allows you to play different types of sounds, so you can make a bit of music by moving your hand through the air. There's a few different levels where you can play with it, and depending on how far away your hand is, you get different sounds. And there is... 
there's one more image processing demo that just takes a, an image stream from a webcam and does a process on it. In this days, it inverges the image, but it shows the type of thing you could easily put onto a Raspberry Pi for your robot to detect a colored object or a moving object or something like that. So with MathWorks, do people come and do courses or workshops? Some people certainly do, yeah. We offer a whole wide range of courses and services for the people who want that. There's online courses for home users and uh, edu uh, users. There's a lot of online courses as well. And on, uh, there's many, many different options to learn. And with the product itself, there's hundreds of hundreds of demos and examples where you could just load one up and get started. So if you want to build a robot, just start with one pre-shipping example and modify it to your heart's content. Thank you for coming and, and give it a go. Build something. Well, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thanks for your time. More interviews from the do-it-yourself day next week. You're still a citizen with the power to vote. Living in a scientific age, we need citizens who know enough about science to make intelligent decisions about what they do. We've used science to, to prolong life, to increase security and happiness, but it can also be used for destruction. Are we going to use it constructively to promote peace and, and give the world freedom from want? It'll be up to you, and you too. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your own voice on radio? If you record a voice memo on your phone, or use the voicemail tab on the website, I'll play your message on the show. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Join my patrons in supporting the show at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of incompetech.com. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 27 stations on the community radio network, including two RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, eight C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, two MVR in Nambucca Valley, and three MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for videos, links and photos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. 
in the study of sciences found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.